Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 9. Revelation chapter 5, verse 8. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song. You will remember that we are actually in the midst of a sermon series on the book of Revelation. But this text, our present text, has occasioned a question. How does God want us to worship him in song? And what do these verses teach us concerning that? This has led to something of a digression, already lengthy. We have been in the midst of two considerations. First, we were laying a foundation of principle when it comes to the worship of God. What he has commanded, that we will do. And we will not alter it, neither by subtraction nor by addition. You remember, this is the way that Moses defines the regulative principle of worship in the book of Deuteronomy. Chapter 12, verse 32. The classic definition, which is the same logically but different in expression, but the classical definition of the regulative principle of worship is that if it's not commanded, then it is forbidden. We spent a good handful of weeks in our considerations of the regulative principle and now we've come to the second part of the sermon series, which is to answer another question. What has God commanded with respect to song? And when we look at God's commandments concerning song, we see that it does have an element of complexity and that his commandments have changed from age to age. With this in mind, we have taken up a, uh, an historical approach to the question We're observing the history of the service of song down through the ages, trying to observe the continuities and discontinuities. What stays the same? What changes? And how do we know? Our goal ultimately is uh, to have a solid foundation of instruction to answer the question most pertinent to us, which is how does God want us to worship in song? I have added to this one other thing that I hope will not uh, confuse the issue. It's a bonus goal. It has to do with the lawful use of music outside of worship. 
Well, first, let's set the overview of the history of the service of song in front of us again. And in your outline, you should have uh, the chart. Uh, here, I, I simply assert what we're going to endeavor to prove concerning four ages of the world. I don't offer a proof just yet for all of this, but simply uh, indicate to you what I'm going to be endeavoring to prove from the word of God. The first age is from the creation of the world to Moses, roughly uh, 4000 B.C. to 1500 B.C. And then during that period of time, there is no evidence that song was used in the worship of God. The second age is from Moses to David, spanning about 500 years, 1500 to 1000 B.C., during that uh, period, we will find occasional songs given by prophets, but not yet any regular service of song for the people of God. In that third age, we move from David to the time of Christ, about a thousand years, roughly 1000 B.C. to 33 A.D., and here we're going to look at uh, two divisions. There is a temple service. And in that temple service, you have the Levites playing the musical instruments as well as singing. And it seems that the people of God sing as well there. And they sing the Psalms. Indeed, it appears that a Levitical school of prophets was instituted by David for the composition of the Psalms. The Psalms, however, were not just sung in the temple. They were also sung in the synagogues and in private worship, but without the musical accompaniment that you would find in the temple. And then the final age is from Christ to the present. And our assertion is that we are to be singing the Psalms. That element continued, but without the musical accompaniment that was peculiar to the temple. Last week we had an opportunity to get into that first age of the world from creation to Moses and we looked at just one text. The book of Genesis chapter 4 verse 21 in this uh, little text we are given the father of music. It's actually said to be the father of Musicians, those that handle the, uh, the harp and the organ or pipe. If he is the father of musicians, he no doubt is also the uh, father of musical instruments. It seems strange to have musical instruments and no one to play them. So it seems that they would rise uh, together. The general context for this was... Um, we were in the midst of Cain's line. So Seth's line is given beginning at the end of chapter 4 and into chapter 5. But uh, in the midst of Cain's line, we are given a notice concerning Lamech's boys and uh, their contribution to a general cultural development. Contributions to shepherding, metallurgy, and music. This musical development was pretty early in the history of the world. We are told that uh, 
Jubal is the sixth generation from Cain. This doesn't give us a, a precise reckoning of years, but if the Cainite generations were being produced at about the same rate of the generations of Seth, this means that the rise of music took place within uh, about the within a, uh, about that 500 year period. So the world's been in existence for about 500 years and probably somewhere in the next 100 years after that you have Jubal and the rise of music. But this would be within the lifespan of the first generation. So it is the seventh generation from Adam, the generation of Enoch, and yet uh, it's still within the lifespan of that first generation indeed. Adam has only hit his middle age at this point in the history of the world. As we observe, there's no evidence that music was used in the worship of Jehovah at this time. This much we can say with confidence. It's, um, it's a negative statement. There's no evidence for it. That's not a conclusive proof against it. But I do think that there is at least some suggested evidence to the contrary. Remember that we did see a notice at the end of chapter 4 that true worship is being practiced among the children of Seth. And inasmuch as there is indication that God was approving of Seth and his line, uh, they would be called the sons of God, we can be sure of this as well. That music doesn't develop for those first 500 years of the history of the world. So we can be pretty sure that music is not being used for those first 500 years of the history of the world. It simply hadn't been developed yet. If God had commanded the use of music from the beginning, it would have developed from the beginning. And it would have been among the Sethites. But that's not where we find it. We find it developing after the 500th year and uh, among the Canaanites. We can be pretty sure that at least these three elements were being celebrated among the sons of Seth. There was preaching. There was prayer uh, in chapter four called calling upon the name of the Lord. And there was sacrifice. But this music develops among the Canaanites. It doesn't appear to be for the purposes of worship so much as a part of the general cultural development of the world. And I should just say at this point, it seems to be every bit as lawful in and of itself as shepherding and metallurgy. In other words, the fact that it developed among the Canaanites ought not to be any necessary prejudice against it. The Canaanites built cities, they practiced shepherding, they worked with metal. I don't see any reason why we would disapprove of uh, music as part of that general cultural development. But we'll keep an eye on that issue. If you have understood this much, then you are right on track with the argument. This is now our sixth sermon, relatively meager results for uh, five sermons, but I hope well proven and that we all feel like we're marching uh, step by step. And if you are able to affirm as much as I have just spoken, then you are right on track with the argument. 
This morning we continue with uh, that series of time from the creation to Moses, and we have only one other text to consider. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 31. At this point, we fast forward to Jacob's day. This is the next mention of music. But there has been no mention of music for a very long time. It seems like just a few chapters, but you, you have to get a sense of the time span and the scale. If Jubal had his rise about 3500 B.C., Jacob's day is about uh, 1739 B.C. So you're talking about almost a full two millennia later. That is a long time. Also, the destruction of the old world, the flood intervenes. So we would, we would probably be right in saying that for Jacob, Jubal is a world away. It's been a long time. And the old world is gone, destroyed. This next reference of music is a passing reference in a larger narrative. Most of you, no doubt, will be familiar. Jacob has served Laban for 14 years for uh, marriage to his two daughters. He has worked another handful of years for the prophet of cattle. Laban, all along the way, has been unfair and unjust in his dealings with Jacob. Uh, God has blessed Jacob anyway, and this has um, created a good deal of tension between Jacob and Laban's family. It occurs to Jacob that he needs to get himself, his family, and his property away from Laban, lest he suffer worse treatment, and he does seem to have the approbation of God for his procedure. So he flees without Laban's knowledge. When Laban discovers it, Laban uh, gathers then and pursues Jacob, hunts him, tracks him down. But God tells Laban to be very careful that he not harm Jacob in any way. And so when they finally have a meeting, they have conversation. And we pick up with that conversation in verse 26. And Laban said to Jacob, What hast thou done, that thou hast stolen away unawares to me, and carried away my daughters as captives taken with the sword? Wherefore didst thou flee away secretly, and steal away from me, and didst not tell me? that I might have sent thee away with mirth and with songs, with tabret and with harp. In my judgment, Laban is disingenuous here. Laban uh, appears in the gathering of men to pursue Jacob, to be attending to do Jacob harm. God is interposed. But here it doesn't seem that Laban is telling Jacob uh, the truth. Laban's protestation here is that uh, basically there was no reason for Jacob to run away in secrecy, to flee away in the night, as it were, because Laban would have let him go 
freely and with uh, rejoicing and celebration. In verse 27, notice Laban's expression. Wherefore didst thou flee away secretly and steal away from me and didst not tell me that I might have sent thee away with mirth and with songs, with tabret and with harp. Laban says that he would have sent Jacob away with four things, or you might say two couplets. The first couplet is with mirth or gladness, joy, those things that accompany festivities, festive gatherings, and with song. This would not have been an unusual thing in any age of the world for um, merrymaking to be accompanied with music. And then in the second couplet, we get reference to two particular kinds of musical instruments. The first is called toph. In Hebrew, here translated tabrant. Again, the exact construction of this instrument is at this point in history impossible to reconstruct. And what sort of sound it might have been produced, it would have produced, can only be approximated. But you will have not gone far wrong if you imagine a drum very much like a tambourine. So it's something that would be beaten with the hand, probably relatively flat. But whether or not it would have had two heads or one, in other words, a head on the front and on the back, or just one head like a tambourine, uh, is impossible to say. However, it wouldn't have had the, um, the jingles, the small symbols of a tambourine. It's just the, just the drum part, and it's played by hand, a handheld drum. We get another reference here to the tenor. We had a reference to this uh, with Jubal. And our Bible's translated harp, but I think more properly uh, the lyre. You remember the difference. The harp was basically a triangle. Its frame had three sides and the strings would span from two of the sides. Uh, A lyre was a frame of four sides. Uh, so basically you would have um, uh, it could be a square or it could be uh, it could be off-centered but basically running from two sides with some sort of a sounding board the lyre appears to have been very ancient in that part of the world just keep these things in mind because this will be very important by the time we get to the temple and its its worship We're doing some spade work at this point. Uh, Follow Laban's argument, Laban's point. Laban's point is basically you had no reason to flee away in fear because I would have sent you away freely and with joyous festivities. You, You understand the argument. You went away in fear and misery and none of it was necessary. I would have sent you away with great joy and happiness. As I said that. Laban doesn't appear sincere at this point. Even though this is a passing reference, it does help us to draw some further conclusions concerning music. We have learned just a little bit more about um, the musical instruments of the ancient Near Near East. Just continue to put those things in your pocket as we go. We've learned something else about uh, music outside of worship. 
And we get another indication here that it appears to be a lawful pastime. It is clear that Laban approves of it. You might be thinking to yourself, well, Laban is probably not the best guide in things moral. But if you understand Laban's argument, Laban thinks that Jacob approves of it. And indeed, uh, Jacob is a much better guide with respect to morality. Laban's argument only works if music is a pleasing thing to Jacob. If it's a thing that's um, unpleasant in and of itself, his argument would have no persuasive power. Like, what, why did you flee away secretly? I would have done something to you you didn't like. Well, of course, that, that makes Jacob's case. It doesn't hurt his case. And if Jacob thought of this as being an immoral thing, the, uh, the argument would have no persuasive power or force. If you had hung around, I would have tempted you into sin, Jacob. Why didn't you stay? Well, uh, such a thing would have had no persuasive power with uh, that holy man in ancient times. One further thing. We're pretty sure that Laban thinks, that Jacob thinks, that this is a lawful pastime, that music is a pleasant thing in and of itself. And Laban is probably correct. At this point, he has known Jacob for a long, long time. And he's even participated in at least two festivities with Jacob and probably more. The marriage of his uh, two daughters. You can see that in Genesis chapter 29. So Laban uh, knows Jacob. He knows his sensibilities. And so uh, he is probably right in his assumption that these things are pleasing to Jacob. When you add this to uh, Genesis chapter 4, that music was part of that general cultural development, I do think we have reason, uh, growing reason to think that music properly belongs in that third category of Christian ethics, things indifferent in and of themselves. You remember in our discussion of Christian ethics, we said most Christian ethics, most of the field is divided up into three categories. Things that you must do, things that you must not do, and things that are indifferent in and of themselves. Uh, if you don't do much in the way of music outside of worship, um, I think few would argue that you must, that it's a thing commanded. In our day and age, you might find a few who argue against it, although even that's pretty rare as a, as a thing prohibited, a thing that's never to be done. I think we we're, we see uh, signs that this is a thing indifferent, part of a general cultural development and something that was pleasing to the holy patriarch in ancient times. At this point, I, I do want to pause and take a glance back at what is a very significant period of time, although the information concerning it is admittedly sparse. I say that this period uh, is important and significant because it is such a large period of the history of the world. 2,500 years, almost half. And what do we find about music in this nearly half of the Earth's age? There is no evidence of its use in the worship of Jehovah. 
We have evidence of preaching, prayer, and sacrifice from the very beginning. But we can be sure about at least this much, that there was probably at least 500 years of the Earth's history before there was anything like music. So for at least 500 years, there was no music in, um, in the worship of God. And I want you just to observe something at this point. Just put it in your pocket. This is, this is an important fact, a bit of information in the, in the contemporary debate. I want you to notice that prayer was long in the world. Prayer was an ancient thing in the world before the rise of music. I make that point because they are different ordinances with different institutions and different governing rules. And that they have uh, different institutions is clear that you had prayer in the world for at least 500 years before it could before song could ever be used in the worship of God and no evidence that the people of God ever worshiped God in song until the year 1491 BC that would be the uh, so that's 2500 years two and a half millennia outside of worship we have uh, a case building that music is a thing indifferent in and of itself, that it is a lawful recreation and pastime part of a general cultural development, which looks like part of um, uh, the creation mandate to uh, for man to um, actualize the potentials inherent in the creation, to bring the things that are potential and all of the things that, has God, that God has made into um, actuality. We move now to the next age. From Moses to David, this is a span of about 500 years, about 1500 B.C. to 1000 B.C. And we get, in 1491, the first recorded instance of the people of God using song in worship. The context is the passage through the Red Sea. And turn with me, if you will, to Exodus chapter 15. The deliverance of the people of God out of their Egyptian slavery is um, the paradigmatic deliverance of the Old Testament. This is that great Old Testament deliverance to which all of the others are contrasted and compared. In chapter 14 of Exodus, we get the history of God, by a special miracle, parting the waters of the Red Sea and the Israelites passing through the Red Sea on dry ground. Pharaoh's army makes bold to pursue the Israelites into the midst of the sea. And God at that point, uh, by the might of his outstretched arm, closes the waters upon the Egyptians and destroys the mighty men of Egypt. Here we find that the greatest army of antiquity is vested by God 
And it was no uh, difficulty, no problem, no exertion on his part. It was his good pleasure to defeat them, and defeat them he did. In Exodus chapter 15, that same history is retold, but now in poetry and in song, unto the praise of Jehovah. Something to consider. This new and glorious uh, act of God Could it be that it was accompanied with a brand new and glorious form of worship suited to this new uh, act of God? Something for you to consider. But as we say, we have no evidence that the people of God ever sang in God's praise before this time. And as we've observed, some indication to the contrary. Let us look at this magnificent song. Uh, This morning, we will simply read it. I wanted to read it in its entirety so that we could see the content of the song and so that our hearts might be lifted in praise with those Israelites as we consider our deliverance. The Lord Jesus Christ delivered us from a servitude and thraldom much more grievous than the Israelites in Egypt. We have been delivered from the kingdom of sin and death. God has done it by a mighty work, not by the separating of waters, but by shedding the blood of his son on Calvary's cross. And in much the same way, our hearts ought to be lifted up as the Israelites lifted up their hearts in ancient times. I wanted to read it in its entirety and not neglect this aspect, although next week when we take it up again, we will look primarily at the formal considerations. Where did this song come from? Who gave it to them? And in what form did it come? The book of Exodus, chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord, and spake, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare him an habitation. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host hath he cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank into the bottom as a stone. Thy right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, hath dashed in pieces the enemy. And in the greatness of thine excellency, thou hast overthrown them that rose up against thee. Thou sentest forth thy wrath, which consumed them as stubble. And with the blast of thy nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The flood stood upright as in heat, and the depths were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My lust shall be satisfied upon them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. 
Thou didst blow with thy wind. The sea covered them. They sank as lead in the mighty waters. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Thou stretchest out thy right hand. The earth swallowed them. Thou in thy mercy hast led forth the people which thou hast redeemed. Thou hast guided them in thy strength unto thy holy habitation. The people shall hear and be afraid. Sorrow shall take hold on the inhabitants of Palestina. Then the dukes of Edom shall be amazed. The mighty men of Moab. Trembling shall take hold upon them. All the inhabitants of Canaan shall melt away. Fear and dread shall fall upon them. By the greatness of thine arm they shall be as still as a stone till thy people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over which thou hast purchased. Thou shalt bring them in and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance. In the place, O Lord, which thou hast made for thee to dwell in them. In the sanctuary, O Lord, which thy hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. For the horse of Pharaoh went in with his chariots and with his horsemen into the sea. And the Lord brought again the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. And Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a timbrel in her hand. And all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing ye to the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. Thus far the reading of God's word. And we will draw some lessons from this next week. Let us pray together. 